0: From the diary of Charles Dawes, the busybodies and mischief-makers, of which Washington has its full quota, flutter around. Those in public position like birds of ill omen have said much of unpleasantness between myself and Mr. Coolidge. I have paid little, if any, attention to them. How Charles Dawes, vice president under Calvin Coolidge from 1925 to 1929, recorded the situation in his diary is not generally how observers at the time of politics saw it and how history has seen it. Indeed, Dawes would have one of the most difficult relationships between a president and a vice president, at least in the 20th century. Some of it had to do with strong opinions that Dawes had, and on one issue, his opinion was very strong. The filibuster, Dawes didn't like it. Again, from Dawes's diary, the Senate seems approaching one of those humiliating concessions to the necessity of cloture. We are only waiting, one senator told me, till the Senate gets mad enough at this nonsensical performance. The present travesty on common sense and proper parliamentary procedure is possible only because the public is not constantly face-to-face with it and does not understand how secret trades on personal and sectional legislation makes it possible. An evening paper says, What a precious privilege it is, this power of obstruction, to organize delay. Irrespective of the naval bill, what order of parliamentary body in the world would lie down supinely to be run over by an individual member or a small minority? After spending the evening, alternately in my office and in the chair of the Senate, while that body, tangled in the web of its rules, flouns helplessly, Arthur Vanderburg, senator deprived of a vote on his reapportionment bill by a minority filibuster, In a masterful and eloquent speech upon it, paid his respect to the Senate rules, which enable individuals from preventing the Senate from carrying out its responsibilities expressed in the first article of the Constitution. But what is the Constitution among friends, he said. What is it among Senate rules and the obstructive power? The Senate, Dawes added in his diary, is paradise on earth for the troublemaker. But for Dawes's opinion on the filibuster and several other issues, he as a vice president would get into a little bit of trouble with the president he served under. The inauguration of the vice president immediately preceding that of the president is usually ritualistic routine affair. Not so in the festivities surrounding the inauguration of the 30th Vice President. Dawes used the occasion for a lengthy diatribe against the Senate's antiquated rules, especially the filibuster, which interfered with effective and efficient dispatch of the people's business. These proposals for reform delivered to the very senators captured national headlines that overshadowed Coolidge's own inauguration. Something that Coolidge didn't like very much. Not only that, when his speech was over, instead of presiding over the Senate and adjourning it, he went with Coolidge to the White House, leaving the senators in a bit of confusion as to what to do. He didn't like everything about the Senate. He didn't like their procedures. He didn't like political bosses that in many cases were responsible. Putting senators there didn't like the lack of action. You know, one has to understand that in this case, the vice president so outmatched the president. Dawes spoke more, he was an orator, he was a longer-time politician, he had experience not just domestically, not just running businesses, but with foreign affairs, he had been noticed by world governments. Dawes had been in working in the White House while Coolidge was just a councilman in a small Massachusetts town. Dawes was older and had accomplished just so much more. He had won a Nobel Peace Prize. He wasn't planning to listen to Coolidge or to be in administration. Dawes says right off the bat, I don't want to be part of cabinet meetings. Harding, Warren Harding, who had been president before Coolidge, had put Vice President Coolidge into cabinet meetings. And Coolidge actually said this is something that when he became president, it helped him a lot to have had been in those cabinet meetings before. Dawes says i don't want to be part of these cabinet meetings because um only the president should be the one you know making the decisions in these meetings they shouldn't have two people to go to or to see and i don't want to get in the way essentially is the excuse but instead of saying this just to coolidge he says this to the newspaper and it's also the case that coolidge had not yet invited him to the cabinet meetings so It appears that Dawes was setting himself up to be separate from the Coolidge administration and to be able to criticize it when he wanted to and not be held responsible for any problems that might result from their actions. first thing that's interesting about Vice President Dawes is he is a musician. And we spoke with Chris Novembrino, who is the host of the Don't Worry About the Government podcast and the All in the Family podcast, about the piece of
2: work that is so influential. This song actually served as a bit of musical branding for Charles Dawes, because when Dawes would enter a room throughout his political career, this is the piece of music that would accompany him. So this was sort of his theme song. Isn't there a tinge of sadness in it? Yeah, it it is. It's it's a bit wistful. Like, um, it's Searching. It has been recorded and performed by a number of different musicians, and actually posthumously, Charles Dawes ended up winning a Grammy for this because it got recorded by a man named Tommy Edwards in the 1950s, and his 1951 recording of became It's All in the Game, lyrics got set to it, that ended up becoming a chart topper, and it got re-recorded again in 1958. This ended up hanging around, getting recorded by Nat King Cole, The Four Tops, Van Orson has a very interesting version that is a departure, shall we say. But this song had a real resonance with people. What I think, being a musician, I think it requires you to look outside of the box and think outside of the box. Because so often you're just starting with a blank slate. Um, and you see this in Dawes' professional life as well. A musician looks at the blank piece of paper and goes, space, I can fill it up with stuff. And Dawes, I think you see that the same way.
0: Smoke, confusion, blue and gray soldiers huddled in an unfinished railroad, firing and being fired upon. Troops surging forward, then back, forward again, hoping for aim, hoping for luck to hit their targets in what's an awkward position to fight in, pointing a rifle downward or pointing a rifle upward because of the terrain orders howled. The flag of the Union goes down three times, and each time it is picked up again. It was the first day of the battle that would come to be known as Gettysburg, and right now, this is not the great battle between two vast armies. These are skirmishers just reaching the fringes of each other. Right now, General Heath's troops are meeting cavalry general john buford's troops his aim is to hold them from getting any farther till the federal army can arrive under george meade and take up an advantageous defensive position major general john reynolds first corps is the first federal infantry to arrive on this first day of gettysburg one of these first corps units was the iron brigade consisting of the second the sixth and the seventh wisconsin also the 19th Indiana, and the 24th Michigan, all Western regiments. And they fought so well in previous battles that McClellan, the Union general, said to one of his subordinates, who are those men? And When it was told that it was the Wisconsin brigades, the Western men, McClellan said that they fought like men of iron. The nickname Took. It was the Iron Brigade. One of those units within the regiments was the 6th Wisconsin, and they faced off against a group of Confederates in an unfinished railroad cut. Here's how the lieutenant colonel in charge describes the action. The regiment halted at the fence along Cashtown Turnpike, and I gave the order to fire. In the field beyond the turnpike, along a regular line of yelling Confederates could be seen, running forward and firing, and our troops were running back in disorder. The fire of our carefully aimed muskets, resting on the fence rails, striking their flank, checked the rebels in their headlong advance. We could see the thin regiments of Cutler's Brigade beyond the turnpike were being almost destroyed. The rebel line swayed and bent, and the men suddenly stopped firing, and they ran into the railroad cut, which is parallel to the Cashtown turnpike. I ordered my men to climb over the turnpike fences and advance upon them. I was not aware of the existence of a railroad cut and mistook the maneuver of the enemy for a retreat, but was soon undeceived by heavy fire, which they began at once to pour upon us from their cover in the cut. One officer fell dead. Others were struck, but the line pushed on, went over the fence and in the field, and subjected to an infernal fire. I saw the 95th New York Regiment coming gallantly into the line upon our left. Further to the left was the 14th Brooklyn, The 95th New York had about a hundred men in action. Running hastily to the major of that unit, I said, We must charge, and asked him if they were with us. The gallant major replied, Charge it is, and they were with us till the end. Forward charge was the order given. By both the major and myself, we were now receiving a fearfully destructive fire from the hidden enemy. Men who had been shot were leaving the ranks in crowds. Any correct picture of this charge would represent a V-shaped crowd of men with the colors at the advance point moving firmly and hurriedly forward while the whole field behind us is streaming with men who had been shot and who are struggling to the rear or sinking in death upon the ground. 420 men started as a regiment from the turnpike fence, of whom 240 reached the railroad cut. Years afterward, I found the distance passed over to be 175 paces. Every officer proved himself brave, true, and heroic in encouraging the men to breast this deadly storm. But the real impetus was the eager, determined valor of our men who carried muskets in the ranks. The rebel color could be seen waving defiantly just above the edge of the railroad cut. My first notice that we were immediately upon the enemy was a general cry from our men of throw down your muskets, down with your muskets, running quickly forward through the line of them. I found myself face to face with at least a thousand rebels who I looked down upon in the railroad cut, which here was about four feet deep. I shouted, where is the colonel of the regiment? An officer in gray with stars on his collar who stood among them said, who are you? I said, I am commander of this regiment. Surrender, or I will fire on you. The officer replied, not a word, but promptly handed me his sword, and all his men, who still held them, threw down their muskets. The 6th Wisconsin would capture 232 prisoners in that action. It would be an important, they would would be tested more during those days on their position on Seminary Ridge, but the railroad cut proved important to the momentum of the day. That account is from a man who would have been considered a war hero then and many years afterwards, Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes, father to the future vice president. Between his father's bravery and his mother's sunny disposition and enthusiastic energy, Charles Dawes inherited some traits that would be with him for his entire life. The family home at 408 4th Street in Marietta, Ohio was filled with love, praise, and encouragement. Rufus Dawes instilled in his family a sense of honor and a sense of service. But more importantly, a sense of courage to stand up to critics. Here's what Rufus Dawes wrote to his son. When I see the pitfalls, snares, and failures into which young men become entangled because of lack of courage, I think of you with great hope. I have seen you withstand temptation, and insist prevailing sometimes to which you felt you ought to. Do you know the power to withstand the drift of general opinion when it is wrong is what marks a man more than anything else? But this must not be mistaken for a habit that some have of criticism and objection. Don't habituate yourself to taking the opposite side. Always agree with the prevailing sentiment. Unless it is wrong. And then be right and quietly patient. So wrote Rufus Dawes to his son Charles.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
0: Dawes was born in 1865 in Marietta, Ohio, and at the age of 22, former Ohio Governor Rufus Walton hired Dawes to go to Lincoln, Nebraska, and look after real estate holdings that he had there. Dawes jumped on the opportunity. He was admitted to the bar in Nebraska, he thrived there, he opened up law offices established a reputation for handling railroad cases. And he became friendly with local Nebraskans. William Jennings Bryan, his brother Charles Bryan, uh, the soon-to-be general John Pershing. William Jennings Bryan and Dawes went to the same Presbyterian church and lived two houses apart on the same street. He wrote to one of his friends, I've got a pretty good thing here for a beginner. Indeed, an article in the Nebraska State Journal included Charles Dawes in its its list of 1888's leap year catches. This was a joke that, an old tradition, that on a leap year it was acceptable for women to propose marriage to an eligible man for a leap year on February 29th. On this list, he was described as an attorney at law and an anti-monopoly agitator. Age 24, he's actually 22, weight 135, height medium, dark hair, and the neatest mustache in Lincoln. He's rapidly rising in his profession, seems to have a disposition to go back and see somebody in Ohio occasionally, but is worth trying anyway. Call at the Board of Trade at regular hours. Indeed, the somebody who Dawes was seeing back in Ohio was Caro Dana Blymer, woman from Cincinnati who he would end up marrying. The 1880s were great for Dawes in Nebraska. The 1890s, not so much. The nation had plunged into the worst oppression since the founding of the Republic. Rover Cleveland entered his second non-consecutive presidential term. He found the U.S. Treasury depleted by nearly $10 million worth of gold. Not a fan of silver money, he called Congress to special session to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. In the wake of this gold deficit, business ground to a standstill. Farm commodity prices tumbled and bank failures became rampant, especially in farming communities and small towns. Lincoln, Nebraska, was no longer this booming railroad town. It was hard hit. Want and misery exist on all sides, he observed. Still, Dawes was trying to help a few families with what salary he had from the few remaining cases. He tried to stall his own creditors, negotiate smaller payments. He sought new creditors he could borrow money to pay off the others. No one could help No one was seeing any business. He headed up a uh, business in Wisconsin then was noticed by Chicago businessmen and began the practice of business there. It's there that he catches the attention of Republican businessmen and gets involved with the campaign of William McKinley.
2: Dawes got a taste of politics in the McKinley administration, and it really suited him. McKinley was the type of president who was perfect for Dawes, and McKinley and Dawes had this really, really close relationship and a really Mm -hmm. tight mentor relationship, and I think Dawes, in his political life to a certain extent, was always chasing that.
0: Here's uh, from Robert Mary's book, President McKinley. Here's what he says about Dawes and his operation during the campaign of 1896. Dawes introduced modern accounting methods and chose business professionals over political hacks. No contract is made for this campaign committee without my approval, he assured McKinley on August 1st, and no contract is let without competitive bids. Dawes helped create a traveling men's bureau, a speaker's bureau, a literary bureau, all charged with pursuing the campaign's educational mission. Hundreds and thousands of leaflets distributed and people speaking on behalf of the campaign an organized message. He reported to McKinley that the operation was running smoothly and morale was high. There has not been the slightest trace of any friction among the members of the committee. Eventually, Dawes oversaw the distribution of some 100 million pieces of literature into a country of about 15 million voters. One particularly popular pamphlet turned out to be a 40-page piece explaining the silver question in easily digestible conversational prose. Dawes's Chicago operation hired 100 employees to produce these materials and ship them out every day in railroad cars. Some 275 separate messages were tailored to specific regions and audiences, farmers, military veterans, first-time voters, ranchers, store owners, laborers, reached through a distribution chain that began with state GOP committees and extended through country, county, and precinct offices. It was new, and it cost millions of dollars, making 1896 one of the most expensive American political campaigns ever. And it introduced a new part of military, um, a new Component of political campaigning in the modern time that we know today, all the way back in 1896, and Charles Dawes was a big part of it. After working on his campaign and raising money, President McKinley rewarded Dawes with an appointment as Comptroller of the Currency, a position which he served from 1898 to 1901. With his White House backing, he sought the Senate seat from Illinois, resigned from his position to run and he couldn't get support from party kingmakers. I would not be the last time he'd be disappointed by politics, he said once. I thought I knew something about politics. I was taken up on the top of a 20-story building and showed the promised land. And then I was kicked off. For Charles Dawes, he wouldn't see service as a youngster, but he would see service in the military as a 50 year old. In 1970, Dawes received his commission as a major in the army and 26 months later, he was discharged a brigadier general. This was during World War I, serving with his old friend from Nebraska, General Pershing. There he integrated the system of supply and distribution for the entire AEF, the American Expeditionary Force. Even the travel to get to war at this time was perilous. Two other troop ships, the New York and the Belgic, left New York about the same time as his ship, the Carmania, and were attacked by German U-boats as they crossed the Atlantic. The Carmania was one of the first ships to make the crossing in a convoy system set up by U.S. Navy Admiral William S. Sims. Naval destroyers accompanied the ship on its voyage and gave chase to the submarines that approached. Dawes was in charge of boat drills, where the men practiced getting on deck and into their assigned boats and rafts as quickly as possible in the event of a submarine attack. With his usual attention to efficiency, Dawes quickly determined that, under current practices, it was impossible for an entire crew to assemble and climb into life rafts if the ship ever came under attack. He kept a record of the time it took for regiments to arrive on deck, from the hold, when given the order and rewrote the boat drill manual based on his findings. He sent a report up to Pershing, who adopted Daw's recommendations and implemented them as the new boat drill procedure. All the work that he had done pre- previously, in c- campaigns, in banking, in running companies, in running charity organizations, he put to work for the United States. He didn't always make a expert military man. Uh, One of the things that General Pershing was slightly annoyed by is he didn't always button up his collars and button up his jackets the way the military work can do. But in terms of organization, there was no one better. When asked about the expenditure on horses... He famously exclaimed during a
2: congressional hearing, Helen Maria, we were trying to win a war. So Helen Maria Dawes comes from a quote where he was speaking to Congress about overpayment for uh, horses, I believe it was, but he says, Helen Maria, we weren't trying to keep a set of books over there, we were trying to win a war. And I think that sort of speaks to... Dawes' sensibilities about you know, sometimes you just got to get things done and it's not always pretty. Uh, he, he was a very pragmatic sort of guy. And there is a debate even as to
0: what he was saying. Was he saying Helen Maria or was he saying Helen Maria?
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia,
0: We'll speak with a diplomat,
1: a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation.
0: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything
2: can help bring them back together. Face Off launches April 9th.
0: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Vavalucus dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: So Dawes maintains that there was a regional phrase from where he is from that is Helen Maria. Uh, However, hell and Maria is much, much cooler. And so I I always err on the side of the cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think he said hell and Maria, too. And he claims it was the latter, hell and Maria, that he wasn't swearing in Congress. In 1919, despite the fact that his own Republican Party opposed it, he urged Congress to take Woodrow Wilson's side and accept the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations that came with it. He would not be successful, but the League of Nations would remember his advocacy and invite him for an important job. For the time being, he'd have to satisfy himself with being director of the budget, a new position that didn't exist before. And he did this for part of the Wilson administration, and then into the Harding administration, where he was responsible for lowering the budget. Most importantly to his reforms as budget director was that each department of the government now had to prepare a true budget projecting future expenditures and stay within that budget. It's estimated that this reform and others, one of the other reforms that he introduced was unification of purchase, so that if there were common items, let's say, uh, gasoline, it would be shared between the departments and not purchased separately. These innovations, which seem normal to us now, but were innovations for federal budgeting in the 1920s, saved the government about two billion dollars in the first year they were introduced. You know, he he would tell friends later that as budget director, he was a lot more powerful than the vice president that cabinet members were working against the president at many times. They had their little fiefdoms, they wanted their money, and it was the budget director that had to control things, to say no, to accomplish an overall budget objective instead of 16 different ones. In late 1923, Dawes' budget director, the League of Nations, invites him to chair a committee to deal with the question of German reparations. The Dawes Report, submitted April 1924, provided facts on Germany's budget and resources and outlined specific measures needed to stabilize the currency and to suggest a schedule of payments that are still going to be payments that Germany has to make, but are easier than the previous reparations from Versailles.
2: Dawes came up with a history I think can look back and judge it as a not fully sufficient, but it, what I think you could have looked at as a good start, too. Right. The Dawes plan in August of 1924, where he essentially set up a debt repayment deal between Germany, Britain, France and the United States. I, I think if you look at it, Germany is still overburdened with war reparations, like he mm. wanted Germany to pay uh, I'm looking at the, in billions of dollars here, and this is in sure. 1924. Uh, 17.2 billion to France and 8.6 to other countries, on top of 7.3 to Britain. So the, the Dawes plan was still pretty punitive on Germany, if you look at it. So that, that's, I think, a fair critique of the plan. But he was at least there realizing that in order to get global peace and regional peace going, you had to figure out the money issues. And, and I think that that speaks highly of him. It, he was very good at synthesizing the various elements of his life to become an effective politician. The Ruhr area was to be evacuated by foreign troops. Reparation payments would begin
0: at $1 billion marks the first year, increasing to $2.5 billion after five years. The Reich Bank would be reorganized under the Allied supervision, Sources for reparation money would include transportation, excise, and custom taxes. Then Germany would be loaned about $200 primarily through Wall Street bond issues in the United States. The Dawes Plan goes into effect September 1924, and Dawes and Sir Austin Chamberlain share the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, the, the vice president's room behind the Senate chamber was impressive. Tall mahogany cabinet, Dolly Madison mirror, Rembrandt Peel a portrait of Washington, and a chandelier that at once hung in the White House. Dawes enjoyed talking to senators and visitors who would come to the gallery. But one thing he just couldn't stand is that the conversation with Senators was always about will this Senator be willing to concede something for me or something for them? He was convinced that if unlimited debate were allowed, the Senate rules would always grant more power to small minorities of Senators, and not to the overall good of the nation. He didn't keep his criticism to the Vice President's room, nor to one single speech in the Senate. He would seek public forums where he would go and denounce the Senate filibuster. During the summer recess in 1925, his first year as vice president, he tours the country addressing public meetings on filibuster reform. Dawes was not successful. uh, And during his term, of course, the filibuster was not eliminated. But there was a little less usage and cloture where at his time it would be 66 senators that could say that, uh, you know, 67 senators could say that someone needs to stop speaking, was invoked a little bit more than it had before. Later, after Charles Dawes' death, the filibuster would be changed to 60 votes, where it is today. And today, as we know, it's limited in, in its usage. It cannot be used for judicial or even Supreme Court nominees at this time. Those are changes that Dawes might appreciate. Just about six days into his tenure as vice president, he has an opportunity to use one of the few functions, and that is to break a tie vote, but he can't. The president's nominee for attorney general is Charles Warren, and there are some senators that Dislike him. And so it comes down to an exact tie. You know, between the different factions of the Senate, there's some progressive Republicans that don't like him, kind of joining with the Democrats against the president's nominee. One Democrat who is on the fence, you know, is is still his his vote's up in the air. So the first vote is a tie vote. Charles Dawes is in a nearby Washington hotel taking a nap. By the time he is roused. And arrives there, that Democrat switches his vote. And the nomination for Charles Warren is defeated by one vote. So the vice president does not get an opportunity to vote if it's not a tie. This infuriates Coolidge. And it's something that a number of senators and a number of pundits would make fun of him for. When he later would go to the gridiron club, uh, and their humorous dinners, they would present him with a four-foot-high alarm clock. He was a vice
2: president with his eye on the higher office. He knew how everything worked and could actually kind of push things along, but that clashing between him and Coolidge, that competing visions, uh, it it just it made them a bad partnering. Dawes spoke out in support of farmers. So Dawes actually is fighting for McNary-Hawton to get passed, which is like a relief act, a farm bill. And Dawes spends a lot of time kind of log rolling and cracking heads in the Senate to get this bill passed, it gets to Coolidge's desk, and Coolidge vetoes it.
0: During the 1920s, this is before the Great Depression, the Depression for farmers started early. Farm prices had dropped. Senator Charles McNary of Oregon and Representative Gilbert Hagen of Iowa, both Republicans, sponsored the mcnary hagen bill to permit the federal government to buy crop surpluses and sell them abroad while at the same time maintaining a high tariff, the result would raise farm prices and earn more money for farmers. When progressive Senator Robert La Follette executes a filibuster on a banking bill that conservatives want in order to get a vote, demand a vote on this farm bill, Dawes intervenes and gets both sides to work out this logjam. You know, make some concessions to the conservatives who support the bill, make some concessions to the radicals who are supporting the bill, and get this farm bill passed. One senator said that by sheer force of his personality, Dawes forced an agreement that both measures could be voted upon, both the banking bill that was filibustered and the farm bill, and get it through the Senate. Both bills passed. Unfortunately, the vice president's work was none on behalf of the administration, and in this case. This wasn't something that Coolidge wanted. President Coolidge twice vetoes McNary-Hoggin bills that his vice president had helped the Senate pass. Coolidge further complains the mcnary Hogan people have their headquarters in Dawes Chambers. In 1928, President Coolidge announced that he chose not to run for the election that year. Pundits were still not sure what he meant, but... It started the races of those who might be interested in running, and Dawes certainly was one of those people who would have liked to have been in that conversation. Dawes claims that he didn't make much of an active attempt to seek the presidency because he thought that Coolidge was just asking to be asked to run for president again and that the convention would go for him. But instead, they went for Herbert Hoover. In that convention, Dawes received four votes for president and received many delegates' votes for vice president and was talked about. The inner circle at the convention thought that, many thought that Dawes should be in it. One um, problem was his support for the Farm Bill, which the Hoover people didn't want, and he was asked to renounce it on the floor of the convention. Dawes refused. It's also known that Coolidge had let it be known that picking Dawes would be seen as an affront to him.
2: Like Coolidge's dislike of Dawes ran really deep and in in true Calvin Coolidge fashion, rather than throwing shade on Dawes outright, what Coolidge did in his diaries, in his memoirs, is essentially omit any mention of Charles Dawes as much as humanly possible. He would describe (laughs) events and and just make it a point that there was no Dawes there. Dawes never happened.
0: (laughs) And so the vice presidency went to Charles Curtis. And we lost an opportunity for a yet another vice president, including George Clinton and John Calhoun, who had served under two different presidents. Um, Herbert Hoover and Charles Dawes would have represented a kind
2: of a doubling-up ticket. Yeah, this would have been like the progressive Republicans kind of coming together, and this would have been Mm -hmm. a very activist. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have still been Republicans, but Republicans in the late 1920s, but but very much on the doing stuff side of things. Absolutely. That might have been better. That on- honestly might have been better for Hoover, especially when faced with the Great Depression. And y- you want confidence. And one thing that Dawes always had an abundance of was confidence and certitude. And-, and that might have been very helpful.
0: And he could have been a person that could have whispered in his ear and said, look, you've got to do something here. You can't just um, and 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 Hoover did do things, but you know with, with very small effect. And you've got to do something large here. And maybe Hoover could have turned to Dawes and say, "Okay, I'm putting Dawes would have charge ideas
2: too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just we need to do something. I think that that is sort of." the Zen of Dawes and, and something that is kind of missing from like the current political moment is it's, it's a guy who says we need to do stuff, but also is just willing to kind of conceive of a plan. He could draw it up like the Dawes mm-hmm. plan. Like he, he'll actually sit there and put the pen to paper and try to make the thing work. And it's uh any number of things could happen from there. Not
0: Speculating way too much about the relationship between Hoover and Dawes and what would have worked out, but there might have been any number of delegates who might have wanted to have Dawes for president. You start running out the real alt altist on that one. And I think that people look at the uh Hoover Roosevelt election in nineteen thirty two and say, Oh, it was a blowout. But actually um, you know, Hoover got 40% of the vote. Um, he got a significant amount of electoral votes, won some big states, Pennsylvania. So even after the Depression, you know, he was still a contender. The other important thing to note is that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, gets that nomination in 1932 because of just the total absence of hope or anything like that. What people may not be aware of some dynamics in that in the politics of that time is that if you didn't have such a case to be made and Roosevelt having done his little New Deal in New York and laying out the groundwork for what he, he'd do about the Depression for government action as a, as a strategy you could have had a more placid Democratic candidate John Nance Garner or, um, or Al Smith and either of those might have been defeated by a more dynamic either Hoover-Dawes or Dawes ticket where people were then convinced, okay, the the GOP is at least trying to do something here. He would have a role in the Hoover administration, um, a- ambassador to Great Britain, and working on the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. When Democrats took over the White House in 1933, he, like almost all Republicans, were not part of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, but he was asked to help reform the government under President Harry Truman
2: in addition to all the other things that he did he got a Nobel Peace Prize for the Dawes plan and the other thing that I think that he did that was really cool he did two other things actually one when he was campaigning for Calvin Coolidge in 1924 uh, as Vice President he ran explicitly against the Klan which I think is something that history should always look fondly on him for and the other Mm -hmm. thing that he did um, following the death of his son is he opened up homeless shelters all over Chicago and I, I just think that that's really cool he, he he's someone who led this very very well-rounded life of service to the country on many different fronts he never regretted how he kind of handled himself as
0: vice president even though he got into a tiff with his own president and the senate he always was quote i take back nothing take back nothing
2: That's his farewell speech to the Senate in March 4th of 1929. I think that kind of tells you where he's at.
0: I think the way that uh, Robert Waller describes it in the biographical dictionary of vice presidents really seems fitting here because this doesn't happen with all the vice presidents, but with Dawes, I think you have a person who's outsized the job, certainly. Here's what he says. If his total career as author, banker, servant of four presidents, winner of a Nobel Peace Prize, and administrator par excellence were included, then the evaluation becomes near great. In the pantheon of vice presidents since 1789, Charles Gates Dawes stands among the luminaries. I want to thank you for listening. The website is MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. Please go there. Also, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps us. Write a review. If you like this program, please write a review. That helps. Um, spread the word in any way you can. A lot of good episodes coming up this year. Thanks for listening.